If you're listening to the Carolyn Klein interview at this moment through iTunes, you don't know what you're missing. There are several episodes, including my interview with Richard Bushman, that are not currently available through iTunes. These episodes are only available by becoming a premium subscriber today. Becoming a premium subscriber can be done at as little as a dollar a month or $10 a year for a premium membership. It gives you the chance to support the podcast while also having early access to new episodes weeks before the general public and gives you exclusive access to premium member-only episodes. To become a premium member, go to mormondiscussion.podbean.com and click the subscribe button in one of the early entry episodes or go to mormondiscussion.podbean.com backslash premium hyphen sign up. You're missing out on episodes such as John Westover and I talking about what is doctrine, my interview with Claudia Bushman, and her book, Mormon Women Have Their Say, and of course, my interview with Richard Bushman, author of Rough Stone Rolling, as we discuss at great length faith crisis and how we and the church can better help those struggling. Please consider becoming a premium member today, and don't forget, Brother Bushman is waiting. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Dot com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Carolyn Klein, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Doing excellent. Grateful to have you on. For my listeners, Carolyn Klein is one of the edit- editors along with uh, Claudia Bushman on the book Mormon Women Have Their Say, Essays from the Claremont uh, Oral History Collection. And it's a wonderful book. I know some of the essays are written by uh, you, correct, uh, Carolyn? Uh, yes, I wrote two of the chapters. Okay, and a couple of them are also written by Claudia, and then several chapters are written by other uh, sisters within within Mormonism, sharing uh, a feminist view of some of these issues. And and I'm going to – I don't want to say this the wrong way. I mean, a lot of listeners are going to listen, and a lot of times the word feminist is a turnoff, but – I hope people understand what we're getting at and as we have this discussion today, which is issues that are important to the females, especially the sisters within the church. And this book just hits, I think, the nail on the head with several of these issues and hope to talk about a couple of them with you on the essays that you wrote. But wondered if you might start us off by telling us about how this book got put together and and maybe what went into it. Sure. Well, this was Claudia Bushman's brainchild. She came to Claremont. Uh, in about 2008 or so, and she um, knew she wanted to do a project, and she got a grant from the Singer Foundation and decided upon this oral history project. Um, and it turned out to be just an incredibly smart move. She started the ball rolling and eventually got almost 200 in-depth 
We're talking two or three hour long interviews with Mormon women from across the country, even across the world, um, which have been transcribed. And so now I think we have, you know, 2,500, maybe 3,000 pages of Mormon women being interviewed. And these these interviews are going to be a treasure trove for future scholars down the line. When when scholars want to know what women in the 20th century were thinking, Mormon women, they will come to the Claremont Oral History Project and look at these transcripts. It, it was a really fantastic idea. I uh, was sitting there thinking about this book as I was looking through it over the last few weeks and, and pondering on different ideas that it has and maybe speaking for a moment to the idea of uh, of feminism or feminist issues, what what got you personally interested? And it's going to sound like a dumb question, right? The obvious answer is you're a female and you're a member of the church, and so these issues interest you. But maybe I can take it a step further. There are lots of sisters in the church who at least currently don't feel like some of these issues are very important. And yet there are sisters in the church who who maybe struggle to find their place or want to be sure that 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 um, that role is is defined in a way that allows them more flexibility to go and do the things that are important to them. How did you get interested in that that track or thinking about feminist issues in that way? It's always been a part of me, even as a as a child. You know, I remember kind of questioning Adam and Eve and Eve getting punished. You know, even women being punished for Eve's sin. But apparently no men being punished for Adamson. Even as a 10-year-old child, I was asking these questions. Same thing as a teenager. I remember driving along with my mom one day and, and seeing a sign that said, Pastor Marsha Graham would be preaching today. This is at another church. And I remember kind of my mind being blown. It was the first moment I realized women could be ministers. And I had never understood that, having been raised in the Mormon church. And so I think my mind just continually became more open, and I was asking more questions. And eventually, uh, I landed at a women's college when I was 18. And, of course, that really set me on a path to asking questions about gender and to embracing the label um, of feminist. I'm very proud to um, call myself a feminist, and I love many, many feminist ideals. Of course, uh, we should make clear that there are many different variations of feminism. It's not all the same thing. There are so many different ways of being a feminist. And, you know, I do it my own, particularly Mormon way, and other Mormon women do it in different ways. The, my wife's going to be offended by this comment, but I'm the feminist in our home. And uh, and, and she sometimes uh, wonders, she's kind of happy, I guess, where things are at. And I'm always kind of throwing thoughts out in her head trying to get her thinking and, and what brought that to mind was I was reading in chapter one of the book, which is one of the essays you wrote called Self and Other. And in there, you even speak to the idea of the stay at home mom and, and not at all, uh, looking at that as a negative, but making the comment that for the, for the stay at home mom who, who isn't utilizing that time uh, to do those good things within the home, even that could be perhaps problematic. Would you mind speaking to that for, for a moment? Yeah, no, I thought that was a great comment. That was a little um, snatch from uh, one of the interviews. And the woman was making the point that, um, you know, the, the, a, a standard dichotomy that is presented in the Mormon church is that women who work are selfish and women that stay home and raise their children are selfless. And this woman was complicating that idea by saying, hey, wait a second, 
I think it's actually selfish if you do stay home with your children, but you are not using your time well. You know, there's so many wonderful things to do in the world. There's so many wonderful things to do for other people. If you are not using that time well, you know, then that's the selfish choice. So that that was the the point that 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 woman was making right there. In discussing the self and other in that in that chapter and some of the thoughts that go throughout the book, it, and I know this comment's been made before, right? In the church, we have both culture and we have doctrine, and sometimes culture pervades in a way that people think it's the doctrine, but really it isn't, and. One of the things that happened recently, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, in general conference this last time, for the first time ever, a sister, and actually two sisters, a sister gave an opening prayer and a sister gave a closing prayer. First off, I want to get your initial reaction, just obviously being aware of that, what your thoughts were. Oh, I thought it was fantastic. I mean, I'm I'm a, a person that wants to see progress in the church when it comes to women's issues, and I see this as a baby step forward. Um, it is important for women and men to see women as spiritual authorities. And I think having a woman pray in general conference is a great step forward in terms of showing the Mormon population that women are and should be spiritual authorities and looked up to that way. Um, that said, um, I do fully recognize it was a baby step. And I thought that Laurel Thatcher Ulrich um, had a great comment about this. I think it appeared in the Salt Lake Tribune article where she said that this moment when this woman gave a prayer in general conference um, actually revealed more than it satisfied. And I think what she was saying there, that it revealed where we are as a church um, when it comes to gender and, and that, you know, we have a ways to go. If this was such a big deal and if we are finally got there in 2013, um, it's revealing a lot about where we are as a church when it comes to gender issues. And, and then the comment about more than it's satisfied, you know, there's still a lot of things that need to be done. You know, we can't be satisfied with this. There there are many other places to go. So I, I thought that was kind of a brilliant comment. Yeah, it was part of, it's part of the solution, but it's not the solution itself. And I know when it happened, I kind of knew it was coming just from some of the rumblings on on the Internet. But when it happened, I was so excited, and here's why. Serving in the church, I served, just got done serving as a bishop in the church, and I have on multiple, a multiple amount of times heard other people uh, in leadership make the comment that brethren should give opening prayers and sisters should give closing prayers, or perhaps a brother should always be the concluding speaker in sacrament, and, and those things to me just and maybe, you know, someone's free to, to email me and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in my mind, those are policies and those are not doctrines. And, and anytime we can kind of set the culture aside, get back to the root of what, what God wants us to do and fix those things and put them back where they should be, I'm just thrilled. And so when that happened, I just want you to know, I, I was, I was excited for that reason, that it put to death some old ideas of what how we conduct our church meetings and who can do what when. Mm-hmm. And that things are flexible and that things can change. Um, I love, you know, one of the things I love about Mormonism the most is this idea of an open canon and um, continuing revelation and that the Mormon church is continually open open to progress and change. I mean, this is what the church is. It is progression. It is change. And so when I see moments like this where women are praying in general conference, um, this is the thing I love most about Mormonism. We're changing, and I think we need to change more. But it was a step forward in the right direction, so I was thrilled about it too. 
that's a beautiful idea. You know, you talk about the fact that we we should embrace change, that that's what our church is founded upon, and yet so many members really struggle with the idea of doing anything outside the the status quo of what we're currently doing. And yet in reality, Article of Faith number 9 makes it very plain that that there are yet many great and wonderful things to be revealed in the kingdom of God, and that we ought to expect that at least some of them are going to open up uh, roles for, for the sisters, open up responsibilities and stewardships that that perhaps have never been uh, been spoken of or understood before. Absolutely. And this is this is the gospel of progression. It should be the church of progression, too. In your chapter on self and other, you kind of speak towards the end, or again, maybe this is a collection of what other people have said as well, but that you, there's an idea to, to try and work to change the paradigm that for way too long, women, their role within the gospel, within humanity, from the church's point of view, was to sacrifice their self at the entire cost of putting everybody else in the home uh, in front of them and, and to essentially sacrifice all the things that they wanted to accomplish uh, on behalf of their husband, on behalf of their children. And you speak to changing that paradigm a little bit and putting, putting as a woman, putting yourself first at times. And that's And I want you to speak to that, but I also want to add in for those who maybe wince or, or, or shrug when I say that, that for way too long, we've been in this paradigm where men have been free to go pursue uh, achievement outside the home. And and women, on the other hand, have been asked to sacrifice a lot of themselves uh, for others. And not that sacrifice is bad, it's good. But could you maybe maybe speak to that for a moment to help the listeners kind of uh, grasp kind of what I'm getting at and wording very poorly? <laughs> No, I, I think you're wording it very well. Um, yeah, in, in my essay, I talk about um, one paradigm uh, in Christian theology um, is that man's greatest sin is selfishness. And in 1960, a, a, a woman theologian, Valerie Savings, said, wait a second, selfishness may be man's sin, but I don't think it's woman's sin. That is not woman's great sin. Woman's great sin is selflessness. It's giving yourself away. It's obliterating all your yourself entirely. Um, it's becoming a zero, becoming empty, becoming nothing because you have given absolutely everything away to everyone around you. And so that was one of the paradigms I was using, one of the frameworks I was using as I wrote my essay to say, and I was asking the question, did Mormon women fall into this self-sacrificing, self-obliterating paradigm? And I found in my essay that, some women did, particularly women of earlier generations, um, did talk about kind of dis- feeling themselves disappearing, um, feeling themselves, you know, wanting to be a part of their husband's lives and, and realizing that they didn't really matter all that much to them and, and sort of kind of collapsing in on themselves if they felt themselves disappearing. There were, there were comments like that. Um, and, and those were interesting and poignant stories. But I actually found far more anecdotes and stories um, where women kind of rejected this paradigm, this kind of selfish versus selfless, this idea that um, I need to sacrifice myself entirely. A lot of women rejected that and had a much more much more nuanced approach to these questions um, of how much of myself do I give away? How do I balance my own needs with the needs of my family? And um, women were were very flexible on, on this. And I think that that was one of the most interesting things I found. In fact, maybe I'll read you one or two anecdotes or quotes from women that kind of show this flexibility. 
please do. Okay, so so here is um, like one quote that kind of shows this very flexible approach to um, women's needs and the needs of the family. One woman says, for me, it was the right decision to be at home with my children. I am fortunate to be in a position where I could make that decision. I have friends, however, who have been much better mothers for having work to be engaged in, to be active in careers or jobs. I trust women to do what's right for themselves. And so that very last phrase, I trust women to do what's right for themselves, I see a real sense of flexibility there. Um, you know, she is clearly a woman who values family and thinks that family is completely and totally important. But she's not willing to say that every single woman has to do it the way I did it. Um, she's very open to women choosing to do what's right with them for themselves through careers and through working outside the home or doing whatever else outside the home. And that came out again and again. So here's another little anecdote from a woman. She says, everyone's circumstances are different. So I think it's very important to talk about nurturing the next generation, but not to preach the details of what this means for individuals. I think the idea shouldn't be home versus work, but to go deeper into what the real issue is. And that, I think, is that children should be very well cared for. Then we should each figure out the details given our own circumstances. Once again, flexible. Um, clearly, nurturing children is important to her, but it doesn't have to be done, you know, all the same way. Stay-at-home motherhood. These are women who are open to other paths. And I saw that again and again. Um, and I saw women... As they made their choices um, in these oral histories, whether it was to stay home or whether it was to work, um, these women were were finding value in their choices. They weren't seeing themselves being sacrificed or um, giving themselves away. They saw they saw value in their choices, whether it was to work or to stay home. They were embracing them. They were owning them. They were finding value in them. That's beautiful. When we talk about flexibility. It's been one of the really cool things I've, I've really discovered in the last uh, maybe three years is how flexible the gospel can be. And, and unfortunately, we kind of come into the gospel and as we, as we become maybe teenagers or young adults, we see the world very black and white. It's, it's a very either or. And I've been speaking about this a lot on my podcast. And this issue of the role of women inside and outside the home, we kind of grow up with believing that there's this absolute line in the sand these are the things that a sister should do. These are the things a sister shouldn't. And unfortunately, we apply that not just to women's roles. We apply it to uh, defining tithing for someone else, defining the word of wisdom for someone else, defining what specifically a testimony of a certain principle has to be. And yet, in reality, Heavenly Father has given us a ton of flexibility in the gospel, and even the prophet Joseph Smith said, right, I teach them good principles and I let them govern themselves. And I think the closer we stay to that, really the more beautiful the church can be for everybody, even those who, who maybe struggle or who don't, don't walk a line that others want to impose on them. Does that make any sense? Oh yeah. I, and I, I think that that came out in a lot of women's thoughts in the, in the, in the oral histories that, um, they embraced the principles over prescriptions kind of attitude a lot of the time they thought yeah like family is important raising kids is important but i you know i need to have the freedom to decide how best my family needs to function and if that means dad staying home while mom goes to work so be it if it means part-time for both so be it if it means mom staying home so be it um yeah definitely i i fully hear what you're saying about principles and i love that joseph smith quote that you just gave that's 
I think that perfectly sums up what a lot of the women in the oral histories are looking for and what they embrace uh, as they think of the gospel. Now a brief message from our sponsor, and then back to the concluding half of the interview with Carolyn Klein. Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. I realize that faith crisis and women's issues are probably two separate things, but but in both of those, giving flexibility seems to go a long way. The uh, the other chapter in this book that, that you kind of headed up was chapter 11 on patriarchy. And I wanted to just talk for a moment uh, about this chapter. And I want to start off with a quote from the book. This is, uh, again, this is in chapter chapter 11. This is on page 217. It says, I love hearing the priesthood power in my home and the blessings it brings. I love Father's blessings, healing blessings, blessings of comfort. I love to see the priesthood holders use their priesthood, whether it is with a sacrament, conducting a meeting, performing a baptism, or temple ordinances. The priesthood can make good men great. That said, it really bothers me when priesthood holders use their priesthood calling unrighteously. Too often I have seen a brother pull the priesthood card when he wants his way or a stake president unjustly withhold a temple recommend as a personal vendetta. And I realize this this probably doesn't happen, maybe I should even even guess at it, but I'm guessing that this doesn't happen all the time, but then unfortunately it does happen, and it happens enough that we need to be a louder voice in speaking out against such treatment. Um, your thoughts on unrighteous dominion? I think it's a real problem. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of people don't know how to handle these situations because we have two different rhetorics going on. On the one hand, uh, in the Mormon church, we have a lot of discussion about males presiding. This is in our proclamation. Um, it's in our temple ceremonies. I mean, it is very clear that women, that men have some kind of dominant position over women because of these words preside, because of what happens in the temple ceremony. We know this. On the other hand, we have another train of thought or, or rhetoric that goes on in the Mormon world, which is that men and women are equal partners. And this, of course, happens, we see this in the proclamation, and we see this in talk after talk after talk in general conference, where they are telling us, you know, that men and women need to act as equal partners, you know, not one, not man in front of the woman, it's both side by side. We hear this a lot, but I think that there is, there are some fundamental contradictions going on. Do men preside, uh, do women hearken unto them, or are you equal partners? So, right. uh, and you know, and until this is more clearly resolved, you're going to have some men, of course, you know, quote, you know, as this lady said, pull the priesthood card because this is what they think uh, is within their stewardship, within their realm. So, you know, I, I think that this is something that has to be worked out over time. Yep. You, in fact, you can play my my priest for just a second, or my bishop, I guess, when we talk about within the LDS faith. And uh, and I'll just repent for just a moment and share a story that I think teaches a, a valuable point. When I joined the church at age 17, and my wife and I got married in the temple at age 19, it was about a week after my 19th birthday, and we got married up in, Wa- in the Washington D.C. temple. And just as you're speaking to right, I I hear talks about how the man presides in the home, and 
in some ways, I'm kind of left to figure out what that means, but I took it to mean that I have the final say, and I'm the one who gets to put my foot down and, and decide what this family's going to do. I go to the temple, and in the temple, like you point out, there's also some instruction there that points to to the presiding responsibility and stewardship of men. And I leave the temple, I take my wife back to our, our home, we are now a family, and I'm doing exactly what I shouldn't be doing, which is bossing her around and, and as you make uses the phrase, pulling out my priesthood card. And I'm using it to essentially use unrighteous dominion. After about six months of this, my wife was furious with me. She just couldn't take me anymore, and I couldn't blame her. At the time, I thought I was in the right. And so one night, she just storms off. She's had enough. She's not going to take it. And about an hour later, her dad shows up at my door. Now, her dad's a six foot four was in the carpenter's union his whole life. He built houses. He's got hands the size of my head. And uh, he says gently, do you mind if we sit down and talk? And at that point, he pulls out the scriptures and he opens up to section, I believe, 121 and talks about exercising unrighteous dominion and, and explains how how he has always treated his wife. And it was the polar opposite of what I was doing with mine. And it was at that point that it smacked me in the head that while some of the instruction we get speaks to the fact that men do preside, that way too often in the church we take that over way too far and way overstate the case. Well, I think it's fantastic that you got to learn that and that your father-in-law helped you to learn that. Um, I think a lot of men still probably need to learn that. And and yet also, you know, I know so many lovely, lovely Mormon men that, also, that would never try to pull the priesthood card. So... Um, you know, I think I think that this just points to the, the the rhetoric, which can be confusing to people because you have two different rhetorics, and I find them contradictory. I think a lot of people find them contradictory, and so which end you end up on? I sure hope it's equal partnership, but for a lot of people, it's not going to be. But I'm very glad that for you, you you understood that the place to be was equal partnership in the end. My my thought would be this: Do, Is it a matter? I guess. Can you help us understand how to navigate those two extremes or or is it the fact that somehow the paradigm has to change? Well, you know, I, I sort of take this from a historical point of view. Um, you go back in the 1800s, there was very, very harsh, you know, male domination rhetoric. And as time rolls forward, it softens. And we are in the, we are in time and it is still softening. And so what I see happening is in the 1970s or 80s, that's when the equal partnership rhetoric starts to float into Mormon thought and Mormon discourse. And so now we have these two parallel rhetorics. As time moves on, what I hope is that the male presiding, male dominating rhetoric will slowly fade into the background and the equal partnership rhetoric will become stronger and stronger and stronger because that's how change um, in theology happens in the Mormon church. You know, there's, I can't think of a single instance where the church actually repudiates an old idea. What they do is they tend to just let it slide into history as they emphasize a new strain of thought. So this equal partnership, I see that as the new strain of thought. I think I'm, or at least I'm hoping beyond hope that, you know, in 50 years, we will hear less and less and less about male presiding and more and more and more about equal partnership. I think that's the trajectory. That's my hope, at least. It sounds like the key is to be patient and to hold out for these things to come and, and not to be so bothered 
this very moment that it that you step away from the church, but rather to to hang around and to watch this uh, this beautiful change take place. Yeah, and also to realize what you know what is happening with this rhetoric of preside. I think it's important to realize it has been very much defanged in the last twenty or thirty years. Um, before, like you were talking about, preside was often supposed to mean having the final say, ultimate decision maker. However, um, now it seems to be reinterpreted. If you look, in, if you listen to general conference talks, it seems to be reinterpreted in a much softer way. Now, preside seems to mean calling on people to say prayers, planning family home evening, leading scripture study. Um, None of these have to do with ultimate decision-making anymore. What it is, it's about male involvement. And so what I think the church has done is that they have altered the definition of preside over the last few years. No longer is it ultimate decision-making. Now it's male involvement in the home. And the way that they're getting men to be involved is to say, you need to be, you need to lead out. You need to lead out in family home evening. You need to lead out in calling on people to say prayers. And so, you know, if this is presiding, and it appears this is what the definition of preside is these days. I mean, it kind of is, it kind of makes you wonder if it's worth keeping the word, if that's all it means. It's very much defanged these days. Yep. Yep, very much. The chapter also speaks, obviously speaks a lot about priesthood of women. And there's this big push in the church. I know there was a website, the Ordained Women website. Uh, any thoughts from you on the push by some sisters within the church to try and motivate leadership to consider priesthood for both males and females? Um, I think it's extremely exciting. Uh, I am a big fan of women um, expanding their spheres of action and opportunity. And what these ordained women women want is, I mean, they want to serve. They want to serve and bless and do all these things that they see the men around them doing um, because they want to be closer to Jesus and God. Um, at least that's how I read a lot of their statements. And more than that, they're worried about their daughters. They know what their daughters see when they go out into the world. They see women executives. They see women presidents of companies. They see women being able to do almost everything that men do. And then we go to church and we don't see a single woman up on the stand. And so they are very concerned about what we're, you know, what is, what's this going to do to our young women? What is the likelihood of them staying when they see this huge discrepancy? And so I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the ordained women people. I think it's an exciting move. I look forward to see what they do in the future. And I hope that other Mormons see it for what I think it is, which is women wanting so desperately to serve the church they love and to help the church they love and to help it progress and to keep women, young women actually in the church because there will be so many things drawing them away when they realize how constricted their sphere currently is. As I as I think about, I guess in one in one facet, right? There's always probably going to be certain callings in the ward that are going to be sisters. So, for instance, you're probably never going to have a brother who's the Relief Society president, and and I'm sure there's going to be callings in the ward that would always be a male. But there's two things going on, which is one is the callings. And even within callings, there are some callings that we really don't necessarily have a, a doctrinal backing or reasoning for why one gender or another can only participate in that calling. But that's only one issue. And the other issue, obviously, is the blessing of, of children, the blessing of, of sick family members. 
And we know historically that early in the church some of that took place. We realize that even today in the temple that sisters perform, in a sense, a priesthood function. And so it seems like there's room for that revelation to come at, at some point. Not that I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for it or against it. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to come off as like demanding a change, but just simply saying that for those who shake their head and think that it's impossible, I would say historically there is, there's some room there to see that as a possibility. Absolutely. Historically and also scripturally. I mean, gifts of the spirit are non-gendered in the New Testament. And of course, healing is one of the gifts of the spirit. And so we know women in the New Testament were, were acting in all sorts of priestly ways. Um, and if, we know that women in the 1800s, Mormon women, were also doing a whole lot of blessing and anointing. Um, so there's, there's so much room to argue that this would be a very easy change to make. Um, it would be incredibly easy. Uh, and so I'm hopeful over time, you know, soon would be awesome um, that the change like that can happen. I do see more and more women kind of taking things into their own hands when it comes to blessing. I mean, they realize blessing is not something they can do uh, in the three-hour block, but they take control in their own homes. And so I know quite a few women that lay hands on and bless their children or bless each other um, or bless their babies. I myself held my baby at home um, the, when I had my first child, uh, and we blessed it. Um, and when I had my third baby, I actually held my baby in sacrament meeting. And so, I mean, I think that there are there's room to ask for these changes, um, and there's certainly room to make these changes. Right, and and I agree that uh, again, there's flexibility there. And it, when we think about it too, right, we we talk about priesthood being the power and authority to act in the name of of God and being a male only uh, capacity. And then on the other hand, we talk about motherhood, and and I think about Heavenly Father, and we know we have a Heavenly Mother. We we speak about her very little, but but we know she's there. We talk about her at least in in one of the hymns, uh, and a little bit in Joseph Smith's theology. Uh, but as we think about two Heavenly Parents, I, I can only imagine the two of them sharing in in the giving of blessings to their children. That as we do something in this in this earthly life and and every action has some blessing that's predicated upon it. I don't see Heavenly Mother off in the corner and Heavenly Father the one dishing these out. I, I picture both of them um, having some type of joint effort in, in reaching out to their children to, to bless them. Yeah, I that's how I see it as well. I think Heavenly Mother is a lot more involved and active than any of us or most of us assume these days. And I look forward to you know, talking about continuing revelation. I I very much look forward to continuing revelation about her and to shifts um, in, in Mormon culture, which will hopefully lead towards us actually talking about her a little bit more. Um, it would be so easy for us in sacrament meetings or lessons or talks to mention Heavenly Parents rather than Heavenly Father. And in fact, I, I think that women on the ground are trying to change some of that rhetoric. I know I myself never, almost never use the term Heavenly Father. I use the term God because I see that is inclusive of both. Where I talk about Heavenly Parents, um, it is incredibly important to me that my children know that God does not only look like my son, God also looks like my daughter. I need I need my daughter to know that and I need my son to know that. And so I think our, our language needs to mirror that. And, and I can't do much uh, 
in the three R block other than talk a lot about God, but I, but I sure do try it in my house. Right, right. Both our brothers and our sisters are made in the image of God. And, and I think that certainly speaks to, uh, heavenly parents. I want to start wrapping up and, and I want to ask you two more questions. And the first one is in the chapter 11 on patriarchy. You speak a little bit there in that chapter about disagreeing with male leadership. And at times, the brethren in leadership positions, as you say, sometimes pull out the, their priesthood card. And, I, and I've seen that happen. And it's unfortunate. What would you say to sisters who run into this, how to, how to handle it or how to, how to navigate those, those unfortunate experiences? Oh, that's a great question. It, you know, it would so very much depend on the individual situation. It's almost hard to give a general answer to that. But in general, oh, uh, yeah, I, I don't even know if I can give a general answer. But something like realize that um, the man in front of you is a fallible human being. He is probably trying his best, but he is making mistakes. Um, I think it's always wise to give people the benefit of the doubt and to um, show compassion towards them, even if you know they are terribly mistaken. And so I would I would suggest having that kind of mind frame, you know, stand by your principles, know that you are right if you know you are right, um, but recognize that this is a person trying to do his best, and he may be screwing up, but he's just trying to do his best. Right, right, to be patient with people as well. Like you say, we're all flawed, and, and Elder Holland talked about that at the last conference about Heavenly Father only having imperfect people to work with and, and how frustrating it must be for him. Um, I want to finish off this way. My podcast deals with people who are struggling with doubt, and I know that some sisters out there, that there's a group of sisters out there who, I don't want to, I don't necessarily call it a faith crisis, but, but perhaps that's what it is. They run into these issues where they're struggling with the, perception, the role, the what they perceive is some drawing lines in the sand over certain principles in the gospel that that keep them from participating at the level that they want to and and that that diminished participation causes some sisters to struggle with their faith and and I certainly know of sisters who have even left the church not being happy with the role that they have within the gospel. Any thoughts from you on what you would say to those sisters who are struggling, perhaps in a way to encourage them to lead with faith? Um, well, I would start off by saying I am one of you. You know, I have absolutely had all these questions, and I, and I have shed more tears than I can ever describe um, when I think about these issues, when I thought about these issues in the past. And I'll tell you what has worked for me uh, is I have learned to accept and embrace and love all those things about the gospel that I find ennobling and enlightening and inspiring and wonderful. All the stuff about eternal progression, I love it. I embrace it. Um, however, there are things that I also find demeaning and diminishing, and I have decided that I need to reject those. So in rejecting these things that I found demeaning and diminishing as a woman, I, it actually gave me the liberation to fully embrace the things that I love. It was only after I rejected that I was able to embrace. And so that has been my strategy. I am an active Mormon. I teach gospel doctrine. I raise my kids Mormon. Um, and I can do it because I refuse to believe that God thinks of me as a second-class human being. I refuse to think that God sees me as constrained and limited in my possibilities. I refuse to think that God has placed my daughter in a box and will never let her grow to her full potential. I refuse to believe that 
God wants her, um, that God, that God wants a church that doesn't want all of her gifts. And so, you know, by refusing to believe all that, I can now embrace the things that I love about the gospel. It's a hard process. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance that goes on. There's a lot of angst. There will always be a lot of angst when I see my children learning things that I find problematic from a gender standpoint. But I work with them within the home. I work with my husband. We're on the same page on in many respects. Um, and so there's so much good and so many beautiful things about the gospel um, that for me it's worth trying to make it work. That's beautiful. Uh, Carolyn Klein is our guest today one of the editors on the book Mormon Women Have Their Say. Carolyn, when can, where can people find their uh, your book? Oh, just uh, go, uh, put it in Amazon. Amazon has it. I uh, appreciate having you on the program today, Carolyn. Thanks for having me. Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming great help I've come and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God he to rescue me from danger Interposed his precious precious blood Oh, that day when freed from sinning I shall see thy lovely face Clothed then in blood-washed linen How I'll sing thy sovereign grace Come my Lord, no longer tarry Take my ransomed soul away Send thine angels now to carry Me to realms of endless day To grace, how great a debtor Daily I am constrained to be Let thy goodness, like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to thee Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it Prone to leave the God I love Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, 
Oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy course above.